are you doing today? John, doing well. Thanks for uh, the invitation. Thanks so much. Um, your current role, you're Director of Global Client Engagement at Karen. Prior to that, you've had a long career in uh, ver various roles regarding national security. So I, I wanted to drill down on a couple of those. And, and mainly uh, the one area that I know that our community is aware of, but I don't feel they're as familiar as perhaps they should be, is in export controls. You know, we understand sanctions and OFAC and EU, but I think uh, preparing uh, to protect against violations of export controls don't seem to be, I don't say they're not a priority, but don't seem to be as well known. And so I guess a two-part question is, uh, explain the significance of export controls and from a national security uh, position, how important are they to make sure there is compliance? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So when I think about export controls and, and the, the reason why the U.S. and other countries have export controls, it boils down to um, ensuring that dual use and emerging technologies that have military applications are kept out of the hands of terrorist organizations of narcotics traffickers, and in some instances, foreign uh, companies, foreign research institutes, foreign universities, foreign militaries that may pose national security threats. Um, so historically, export controls in the United States and in Western democracies and in Japan and elsewhere uh, date back uh, towards the beginning of the Cold War, where um, the United States wanted to control nuclear technology to prohibit proliferation. And it's evolved over time to ensure everything from small arms aren't going to Al Qaeda to um, there was a recent announcement this week on, on brain technology that can be used to, to basically enable mind control for UAVs. So we've, we've run the full gamut. And the reason for that again is uh, a national security impetus to control that technology to ensure competitive advantage um, for for nation states. You know, um, obviously you work with government clients, which makes sense. But from a corporate standpoint, from a private sector standpoint, how are these export controls, you know, what what is sort of the, the give us a high level sense of how that, um, how that how that is navigated, if you will. Now, you, you, you talked about, obviously, the technology and a lot of things that are produced by the, by the private sector. But if somebody in corporate America has a global presence, how do they navigate export controls? And, and also, where do they go to find what the requirements are? Obviously, the Department of Commerce, State, places like that. But, you know, I, it's, it's easy for me, if you were to ask me about AML, right, I would point to Treasury and FinCEN, law enforcement and all those agencies, uh, and obviously the regulators. But what about with the export control world? Yeah, it's a it's a different world. Um, so for those that have experiences with AML or with sanctions, it's uh, it's a complicated landscape, but it's somewhat clear cut in terms of where guidance come from. Uh, you have entities on the OFAC list. You have lists in the EU. You have uh, lists in the UK. United Nations, um, and it's strict liability for a lot of these issues when it okay. comes to, to sanctions issues. On the export control world, it's, it's very different. Um, the Department of Commerce in the United States controls uh, dual-use technology exports, and the Department of State controls um, the exports for military items. So for those companies that produce 
military items, you have a very different process to get authorization to export goods and commodities than you do if you produce a dual use component. And when I say dual use, uh, for those that may not be familiar with that term, it's effectively uh, a widget or a technology that can be used for both civilian applications and for military applications. Um, so the United States, from a policy and regulatory perspective, divides the export control regime into uh, those, those goods and services that companies manufacture that could be dual use and those goods and services that have strict military applications. Um, so, uh, you know, similar to how OFAC structures, though, if, if companies are interested in learning more, um, the Bureau of Industry and Security with the Department of Commerce and the Director of Defense Trade Controls at the U.S. Department of State issue a huge amount of information and an overview of how uh, companies can think about internal compliance uh, for, for export controls. Uh, but really, it's thematically quite different than uh, the sanction space and the AML space. Although I will note uh, briefly that uh, there's new legislation that's coming out, uh, both through the NDAA and, and uh, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, where the delta between sanctions compliance, AML compliance, and export control compliance is shrinking. Uh, and so firms really need to be aware that uh, this, this tightening grip on enforcement actions is, is coming to bear both from sanctions, export control, and AML. So uh, give us a little more on that. So, you know, it's always with any new administration or any new laws and regulations, the private sector always tries to figure out what's going to be the focus, what's going to be the focal point, right? And, and again, doing this for many years, I know we always looked at the Justice Department to see what's going to be their emphasis regarding white collar prosecutions, for example, right? So based on that doesn't mean you try harder. It just means you're well aware and you explain internally that, look, there's going to be stronger enforcement and, you know, training needs to be improved, resource allocation, that sort of thing. So it sounds like this is similar. So if you're advising a client, you're looking at the, you know, uh, you're looking out of the frontier here. You're saying, all right, as you just mentioned, there's going to be, and in my words, stronger enforcement or, or a, uh, a focus that perhaps wasn't there before. And so from a practical standpoint, how does that play itself out? Is it, again, resources, training, education, sort of typical things you'd see, or is it even more than that? We see the new administration um, continuing a lot of the same themes from a, an export control and sanctions perspective that the last administration uh, okay. implemented. So when we think about these issues, we, uh, we look very closely at, uh, we advise clients to really understand everything there is to know about their supply chains everything there is to know about their business partners. And this, of course, includes financial services writ large with AML compliance, FCPA compliance, all of that. Right. But uh, we're expanding into a, a brand new regulatory world where it's no longer uh, it, it, the trade compliance offices, the sanctions compliance offices, the FCPA compliance offices at large institutions need to really break down stovepipes because the way that regulations are coming out with executive orders and both, uh, you know, both executive orders and with uh, legislation from the Hill in the United States is the, the Delta is shrinking rapidly. And so the traditional uh, internal compliance programs that we see clients have for export controls, for example, aren't, aren't satisfactory uh, for a lot of these emerging regulatory requirements. You know, um, one of the things that um, is sort of a constant in criminal activity, you know, of any kind you describe is corruption, right? And so you mentioned FCPA. 
we're sort of aware of corruption in the money laundering space, uh, the use of illicit funds by cartels, organized crime, that sort of thing. You mentioned up front that export control issues are important because trying to keep certain weaponry or most weaponry out of the hands of terrorists. Is corruption a theme in the export world or is it, or is it more just uh, these criminal groups wanting to get their hands on these either technologies or weaponry and, and that's the goal or are some people playing it simply for the money? I think you have both. Um, an example comes to mind of Mexican uh, cartels procuring uh, UAV technology that would effectively enable them to fly drugs and, and weapons and money across the southwestern border into the United States, therefore effectively bypassing the land border and um, theoretically making it easier to move illicit goods and, and money into the U.S. So in in the, the way that the regulation is written, um, it's designed to pro uh, prohibit cartels from procuring that type of dual-use um, uh, UAV technology. Uh, so part of it, though, is corruption could play into uh, if Mexican officials were helping cartels, uh, you know, acquire the appropriate uh, export licenses and then um, transshipping that technology uh, to the cartels, that's where corruption kind of plays. But it's a much lower risk strategically than it is for, of mm -hmm. course, FCPA due diligence and broader AML due diligence. In the CP, in the counterproliferation financing world, it's, it's uh, important to understand where that risk lies, but it's not at the forefront of where compliance needs to be focusing their resources. Well, that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. You also have in, in your uh, strong background of national security, uh, an emphasis you've had on on cybersecurity issues. Uh, I know focused some on nuclear cybersecurity. Do, the, how does cybersecurity play into this? Obviously, you've talked about technology, the dual use. That, so that that's logical. That makes sense. But you know what we started to see, and it's been a couple of years now. What we started to see in in our community, meaning the AML sanctions community, you know, typically people in those communities are not cyber experts. But now to your other earlier point, uh, breaking down those stovepipes between the info security people and the other people within the organization makes it stronger. Where does um, cybersecurity awareness fit in? Other than obviously there's ransomware, all sorts of, I get the broader issues, but in the export control space, um, or, you know, you, you've done this maybe separate and apart from that, but where is, where is cybersecurity fit into this? It's everywhere. So in the ransomware example that you mentioned, um, imagine that you have Russian criminal gangs or North Korean actors that are conducting ransomware attacks and procuring crypto or whatever else uh, that they want as a payment method. Well, that creates all types of, of, of course, AML risk, but there's broader sanctions exposure. If, however, those actors were able to infiltrate a, a company or financial institutions uh, uh, cyber systems where export controlled goods uh, or export controlled information exists, you could then tack on an export control violation to that type of attack. So not only would you have to deal with AML issues and sanctions compliance issues, but if for whatever reason, the attacker was able to uh, get into the systems where export controlled information 
um, was kept, you uh, you run the risk of, of running afoul there as well. And this gets back to an earlier point that I was making. Um, earlier this year, the administration announced through Executive Order 14017, uh, securing America's supply chains, a broad swath of regulations for export control, um, due diligence and supply chain integrity issues. And so we always advise clients to not only think about um, cybersecurity from an export control perspective with respect to blueprints and designs and right. kind of some of the more obvious uh, stuff that would be controlled, but now you also have to be really worried about um, personally identifiable information, which could trigger a supply mm -hmm. chain integrity violation in addition to an export control violation, in addition to perhaps an AML or a sanctions compliant issue, if it was, uh, you know, ransomware tied back into a high risk state. The, um, you know, supply chain people that, you know, like myself, who were generally aware of what supply chain was now, uh, you know, our, our relatives and others see it on the news on a daily basis, supply chain issues, because they feel it with food distribution, they feel it obviously with products and services. What's what's your broader take on supply chain uh, issues? I've read, uh, you know, it's a combination of of staffing, uh, you know, some of the restrictions potentially. You know, if you were to explain to non-experts uh, the current supply chain issues during the pandemic, uh, what, what are some of the what are maybe less obvious factors that you've seen? Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. I think there's there's two issues that we kind of see from the risk world. Um, you, of course, have to understand the know your client due diligence um, for anyone that you're doing business with directly. But a lot of these supply chain regulations that have come out over the last 12, 18 months um, since COVID became a reality really focus on understanding know your customer, know your vendor way down in your supply chain. So it's no longer simply good enough to screen against those organizations or those companies or those, those people um, that are directly procuring a good or service or using, you know, your financial institution um, for accounts. It's about understanding who else is connected to that organization, who else is connected to that individual. Um, a lot of the supply chain regulations that have come out since COVID focus on foreign ownership, control, and influence. Mm -hmm. uh, the Department of Defense qualifies this, of course, with an acronym, FOCI. So F-O-C-I. Uh, this really stems from the risks um, connected back to Huawei and ZTE and some of the other Chinese telecommunications and Russian telecommunications firms that were listed on NDAA's Section 889 list. Right. which, um, you know, bans, for those that may not know, it bans uh, large companies, financial institutions and contractors, U.S. government contractors from uh, procuring telecommunications goods, IT goods and services from these, these banned telecommunications firms. So yet again, it's another example of where um, supply chain, export control, PII, all of these risks are coming together, uh, which is you know another reason why we advise our clients to really think strategically about compliance versus stove pipes with AML or sanctions or trade compliance. So that make, that makes sense. Going back again to the AML world, whenever there's a um, enforcement action, um, I always tell folks that I think even if it's you know, a, an institution that's very different than your own. So if you're a small bank, it's a large bank, fine, or vice versa. It's important to look at these enforcement actions and get basically the themes that were called out, where the internal controls, audit issues, um, training, resources, whatever it is, 
and do a gap analysis. Are there major uh, enforcement actions brought by commerce and or state in the past year or two related to uh, supply chain or just in, just in general, uh, import control violations that others can learn from? Like uh, just big picture, what were the, what were the themes? Was it just, um, quote, lack of compliance, lack of due diligence, or more than that. So if, I, if I'm looking to say, I want to read up on this kit and I want to figure out what are some of the ways in which institutions or individuals violate these laws, are there some enforcement action themes that I would look for? Yeah. So on the State Department side, they really have been focused on ensuring exports of military technologies aren't going to China and Russia. Gotcha. Um, that's not really a surprise, I'm sure, for sure. those in the audience. I think what's more interesting, though, is thematically for financial institutions, we've seen a huge increase in um, in meetings coming out of both state, Treasury, uh, the Department of Defense, uh, federal law enforcement, DHS, FBI, on the need for counterproliferation financing uh, measures to uh, both identify and take proactive measures to block uh, the, this type of, of financing. And it, it, part of that is focused, of course, on China, but um, a large part also involves exports to Russia. Right. And both of these nations we've seen um, utilize very complex front company and shell company systems um, all over the world to bypass counterproliferation regulations, bypass export control regulations, bypass supply chain regulations, and certainly sectoral sanctions in the Russia uh, context uh, to procure this type of technology. So when I think about themes, I, I see counterproliferation financing, the, identif the identification of, of this type of information in an automated way as one kind of key theme that, that all of these agencies are, are pressing, pressing out. Um, and then on the export control side, um, we've also seen a, a, a very large and interesting uptick in uh, the control of foundational and emerging technologies. For those on the call that may be in VC or have, um, they're looking at, at investments around the world that they may have in startups or uh, foundational technology companies, this is quite concerning because it effectively enables the U.S. government to block uh, foreign direct investment into these, tech, uh, into these startup firms. And it also enables uh, the U.S. government to impose export controls on emerging technologies that traditionally have never been controlled. So this creates all types of incentives for financial institutions and investors and companies to truly understand where that risk lies, both from a technology perspective and then from kind of a CFIUS uh, foreign direct investment perspective as well. Wow. Yeah. You know, and I, th I think these the last points you're making sort of point again back to connecting internally. You know, when you mentioned shell companies, obviously our community is well aware of the uh, beneficial ownership issues. And, um, you know, they think of it uh, in the general financial crime space, not so much in proliferation finance, but the way you've described it makes it pretty clear why it's uh, one of the newly listed um, priorities um, by, by FinCEN and Treasury, which I wanted to uh, just get your uh, take on a couple of that. But it sounds to me like, you know, uh, if you were talking to a, a banker in Iowa, you know, Kansas, whatever, small, smallish or midsize bank and told them, hey, 
you know, one of the priorities of proliferation finance, they'd say, yeah, I don't see how that's relevant, but I can see how it's relevant just based on what you've told us thus far, you know, just the import of activity, as you say, Russia and China, and I'm sure other countries as well, try desperately to hide uh, sort of the, the connect points. And so even, even a smallish institution could inadvertently uh, assist in financing, right? I mean, I think that's, that's relevant. So it leads me to the, the broader question. So in the AML Act uh, earlier this year, uh, the direction for Treasury and the other agencies through FinCEN was to create a list of priorities, which they have done. There is no uh, regulation yet, but there will be. So the regulations will give uh, institutions expectations. They've said in the description that not all institutions are the same. So they recognize that and their regulations, I think, will probably reflect that. Uh, but what, you know, again, as an expert in this space, what is your take on what institutions should be paying attention to regarding proliferation as a priority going forward? I know, I know they're not out yet, so I know this is early in the game, but you know, obviously your, your job and my job and others is to prepare people for what might come down the pike, right? And so given all that, uh, give us a sense of how you would describe the things that you may need to be paying attention to once these priorities are finalized. Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, the, the Vincent has categorically stated that proliferation financing is a key, you know, one of the top top eight uh, priorities. Uh, they announced that in June of last year. And so when I think about small banks in Iowa or uh, large banks in New York or global banks in London or elsewhere, the risk really lies uh, in ensuring that you fully understand who your customers are. And that type of methodology, uh, ultimate beneficial ownership, all of that is well known in the AML space. But translating those skills, that knowledge that ACAMs and others over the years have built up for, for that world, it needs to be tweaked in a way that's focused on proliferation financing. Right. The U.S. government is prioritizing this, and there will be enforcement actions. Uh, the enforcement actions that have already taken place involve companies all over the world that are procuring goods and services on behalf of the Chinese and the North Koreans. Uh, for example, last week we saw an enforcement action uh, targeting a company in Singapore um, that was acting on behalf of the Chinese um, intelligence services, providing uh, uh, hacking capabilities around the world. So if you're a large financial institution and you're being designated um, for this type of high-risk behavior from uh, enforcement actions, or if you're being investigated for this type of, of proliferation financing, what are your controls that you have in place to state categorically, if, if they come knocking, what have you done to ensure the due diligence, the appropriate level of due diligence, uh, you know, before this ever took place was done? And we advise clients all the time on proliferation financing may not sound as sexy as um, some of the other topics in the risk world, but it's certainly becoming increasingly popular with the U.S. government. And as a result, we just strongly encourage folks to get in front. Uh, because when the U.S. government signals their interests and intentions to do something through notifications, uh, advisories, executive orders, it may take 12 months, it may take 24 months before an enforcement action takes place. Right. But it doesn't matter if it's a company in Iowa or a bank in Iowa or a bank in New York. You have to be aware. You have to know your clients. You have to know your clients' clients. 
and certainly in the transshipment space, proliferation financing will create a, a huge amount of due diligence challenges for financial institutions, but it's the way that the U.S. government is moving. It makes so much sense. And then going back to the June of, uh, of this year's advisory, um, they say very specifically that if institutions should comply with their sanctions programs, of course, part of a risk-based AML program, they should also, as you've just given us great information on, be aware of the economic and trade sanctions issued by the government through OFAC, Commerce's Bureau of Industry and Security, and state's Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation. So there's there's already some good information out there. Uh, plus, what you how you've directed us. Let let me get you out of here on this kit. What do you see besides what all oh, we've just talked about? Obviously, what do you see as the biggest challenge for the private sector in these spaces and adjacencies in in 2022 beyond beyond what we've been dealing with? New regulations are going to be uh, announced focused on understanding Chinese military civil fusion and uh, blocking uh, securities, blocking um, the the, the financing of technology transfers, outbound investment um, outside of the United States, of course. These risks really boil down to what your China exposure is. Decoupling, for better or worse, is happening. And financial institutions, uh, corporates around the world really need to understand where their exposure lies, because if not, they'll get burned, uh, much like how others did a year ago when uh, securities were blocked in New York. Um, So I would just advise clients to be aware, have open eyes, whether or not you like it politically, it's happening. Uh, So we just need to be in this space very, um, we have to know ourselves, we have to know our customers. Kit Conklin, Director of Global Client Engagement with Karen. Thank you so much for your time today and your insight. Really appreciate it. Uh, Have yourself a great uh, holiday season, but thanks for spending some time with us today. John, many thanks as always. Uh, A wonderful podcast. Um, Thanks again. Hopefully we can get the band back together soon. Yeah. Take care. Bye. Take care.